with a strong run up at turn number four at the start finish line. Pagano is pedaling. He'll jump to the outside. Not close enough. Rossi will hold him off in turn one. Alexander Rossi will remain on that lead lap here at the two-car length advantage over Simon Pagano. Sato still right there behind Simon Pagano. Rossi takes him down to the white line. They'll snake their way down the back straightaway. Absolutely cat and mouse right now. Pagano going to pop to the outside. Simon Pagano has taken the lead from Alexander Rossi as he roars through turn number three. Simon Pagano holds on to that lead in the short shoot. About a three to four car length advantage over Alexander Rossi. White flag is in the hand of the starter, Paul Plevins. We are at the final lap of the 103rd Indianapolis 500 mile race. Rossi is pedaling, but Sato's right there in third. It's Simon Pagano, the leader, exiting turn one of the final lap. Simon Pagano trying to sweep the month of May and trying to go to eternal glory, winning his first ever Indianapolis 500. But Rossi is right there. He looks to the inside. Pagano is slipping all over, trying to irritate that air. Now Alexander Rossi to the outside. Pagano shuts the door in turn number three. Simon Pagano, two colleagues in front of Alexander Rossi. Through the short shoot, Simon Pagano the lead, trying to win from the pole. Take him home, Mark James. Pagano got a strong run for turn number four. He's going to pull away from Alexander Rossi. Simon Pagano sweeps the run. Twin checkers out. He'll go to victory lane. Simon Pagano wins the one and third running of the Indianapolis 500 mile race. Hello, it's the day after the Indianapolis 500. Welcome to episode 194 of Motorsport 101. RJ, why, why you gotta be so loud? I'm pretty sure people are still recovering from, from yesterday. The post-Indy 500 hangover is real. That's right. And before we get into anything, I just want to say to all of our supporters who were there to join us for Day of Classics 4... All through Sunday, whether you were there for an hour or all eight hours, whether you were part of our panel of people watching with us or whether you were just hanging out in the YouTube chat all day, uh, shout out, Jason. Thank you all so, so much. You are the lifeblood of this show, and you're part of the reason why we, we do this every single year. And uh, I would like to first, I, I'm RJ O'Connell, uh, reporting from the Motorsport 101 Chattanooga Atlanta Nashville Bureau. Um uh, if you're wondering where a friendly neighborhood Andre Harrison is, he is on vacation for the week. So we got the keys to the house, and we promise we're not going to burn it down. And I would like to first introduce, from our New York office, the man responsible for putting Day of Classics 4 for Fort State together, Mr. Ryan Eric King. Hello, sir. Yes, I too know what it's like to try to recover from a terrible accident. <laughs> Well, listen, there is, there are, it was a happy accident, to say the least, including uh, the happy accident of us <laughs> reveling so much and so deeply in the joy of the race that we're about to talk to that we forgot the Google Hangouts, which is now no longer supported by Google, by the way, has an eight-hour time limit. Yeah, there, there are a lot of things, a lot of features that just don't work anymore. And you know what does work out and what works out really good for us is that on the greatest weekend in motor racing that we have an imprint, 
live and on the scene at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Media Center. He's not here right now, but reporting from our Indianapolis Bureau, Christopher DeHardy of Motorsport Tribune, coming off of his 24th consecutive Indianapolis 500. Good afternoon, Chris. Oh, the post-Indy 500 hangover is real. Um, it was my sixth 500 that I've covered for all the outlets that I've written for, and I can tell you right now, this one was a, definitely a barn burner. Uh, a lot of uncertainty, too, because... When, right before I was getting ready to leave the house at, or the apartment at 5.30 in the morning, it was pouring down rain. And then about five minutes later, it stopped. I left for the track, and it didn't rain again all day long. So whoever the weatherman was I'm pretty or weather person was, I'm pretty confident that the Holman George family must have paid him off a large bribe because it didn't rain at all all day and we're- long. I don't think that's how weather works. We're thankful for that. Hey, it's going to be how the weather works right now in this 5G era. You know, it could be predicted for sun. You know, it'll rain all day. They predict rain all day. It's going to be like 95 degrees and humid out without a cloud in the sky. Monaco sucked. But but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the greatest spectacle in racing and events adjacent to it. We're here to talk about the Indianapolis 500 on this show. Simon Paginot closes the book on the most dominant month of May in modern history. Wins the Grand Prix of Indy. Wins the pole at Indy. Wins the Indianapolis 500 by just two tenths of a second. There are many other stories, many other drivers who starred and made an impact in this race for both good and for bad reasons. And we had a support ticket that included yet another barn burner of a finish in the Indy Lights Freedom 100. And we will get into it all on this episode of Motorsport 101. Your hub for all things that we do, podcasts, written content, videos, is motorsport101.com. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. We are on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. If you wish to follow us personally, we are at Harrison101HD. That's for Dre, myself, RJ O'Connell, Ryan Eric King, that's with two Ks, and with C DeHardy, that's C-D-E-H-A-R-D-E. And of course, if you wish to back us financially and take part in all the action, live before anybody else does, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Let me tell you, for just $5 a month, you get early access to all the shows we record. And for $10 a month, you can be led into the supporter section of our Discord channel, where you can listen to episodes live as they are recorded. And for our Indy 500 debrief, we have a good crowd. To Jason Poland, who is here all eight hours of Day of Classics 4, from the pre-race hype at Monaco all the way to the post-race breakdown at Indy. He was there. Cameron was there um, to be part of our panel, um, still recovering from his favorite driver, winning the Indianapolis 500. Brian, our first donor on the Motorsport 101 YouTube channel, is here listening. And Rezzy, of course, at 3 a.m. in the morning in Indonesia, is here listening to us as well. As opposed to 3 a.m. in the evening. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. Let's get right into it. Let's get into the 103rd Indianapolis 500, one of the better Indianapolis 500s we've seen in quite some time. And yes, indeed, as Chris mentioned, 
The rains did not arrive. They did not push back the race. We got the full race in under clear, somewhat cloudy skies. It was a beautiful day in Indiana. It was an even wonderful day for a race. Um, Simon Paginode, what a dominant performance. And if you would only watch the last few laps, you wouldn't think so. But having led 116 laps, having taken the pole position, it seemed only fitting that he would close the book on one of the greatest months of May. The first driver in the short history that you could do this. He won the Grand Prix of Indy two weeks ago. He won the pole a week ago, and he went on to win the Indianapolis 500. And through the first half of this race, King, it looked like he would have a stranglehold on this race from the very beginning and not let go. Oh, I, I, yes, it looked like he had a stranglehold on the race, but anytime I see that happen in any Indianapolis 500, I always get this, like that, you know, that itching feeling in the back of your head that something's gonna go wrong. Yeah, I think we're, I think we've seen dominant drives completely get washed away. I think the one that really sticks out in my mind was Michael Andretti, the 92 Indianapolis 500, who led most of that race and broke down with just a few laps ago. Paginot, of course, was one of the most consistent runners in qualifying. That's how he got pole position. And in clean air especially, it looked like he had an absolute weapon of a number 22 Menards Penske Chevrolet. Um, he was able to break the toe at some points and get out to a comfortable lead at points during the race. But you had to feel as the second half of the race came on, there were going to be some other contenders. And Chris, the uh, the main contender that rose to the challenge was Alexander Rossi at Andretti Autosport. And I'll tell you that he was going to be he had some extra fire in his belly because at one point in the race, he said it himself, he was the angriest man on track. Well, he had every right to be. Uh, Elio Castroneves held him up a little bit. Castroneves, of course, being a teammate to Simon Pagano. And then, in my opinion, the highlight of Rossi's race, he was blocked a couple of laps by Oriol Serbia, who was a couple of laps down. And Rossi overtook him on the main straight on the outside drove with one hand, and the other hand was shaking his fist violently at the Spaniard who nearly won last year's race, and I'll go ahead and bring it up, the Spaniard that actually qualified for the Indy 500. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I had to, I had to, I'm sorry. Anyway, Rossi could move his car at will and charged up magnificently through the field and was really Pagano's only true competition Yes, on the the day it mattered most. Um, he was actually my pick to win the race. I picked him to win the race even before the season started. And I can tell you right now, if Rossi would have won, all three of my pre-race predictions that I made before even walking into the track would have come true. Alas, it didn't, but Rossi was amazingly, amazingly well-prepared to drive this race. To, and I can tell you right now, he made a lot of fans out of people that were watching the race for the very first time. He did a fantastic job. And it was... Yeah, and not only... Yeah. Not only... He also forgot to mention during one of his green flag stops, he was delayed because uh, the fuel nozzle wouldn't engage with the car. Where have we seen so this he before? So stuck there. 
Oh goodness, yes. It was uh it was right around lap uh one one thirty eight that Rossi comes in for a green flag pit stop. Uh they cannot get the fuel filler rig to engage, and you could see as the TV cameras were zoomed in, Rossi was just shaking his head. He was banging his fist on the steering wheel, wondering how in the hell this race was going to get away from him like this, after he really had the only car that could challenge Simon Pagenaud's car in a straight fight. But as it turns out, there was a little bit of divine intervention from behind him, because just as he was, his pit stop was starting to unravel, rookie Marcus Erickson in the number seven Aeroschmidt Peterson car uh, spun out on his own and made light contact with the pit wall, which then said, I think Erickson hit us. <laughs> and that brought out the third of four cautions in today's race. There were four in total. We'll talk about the other three here in a bit. But if not for that caution, that would have easily put Rossi a lap down and absolutely taken him out of contention. Um, but it's but he did was able to salvage the race. Uh, turning major turning point in the race came with twenty two laps to go, and it happened during a battle for seventh position between. Dale Coyne, Vassar Sullivan driver, Sebastian Bourdais, and Rahal Letterman, franchise driver, Graham Rahal. Uh, King, you want to take us through the sequence of events that triggered a massive five-car pileup? Ooh, let's see. So, exit turn four. Sebastian Bourdais is ahead of Graham Rahal. Graham Rahal looks towards the inside to make a pass. He... he he gets his front wing ahead of Simon Pagenaud's, uh, you know, left rear wheel. Uh, it looks like he's starting to gain some ground, maybe get alongside Bourdais heading into the corner, but he just can't get there quick enough. B- Bourdais moves down. <laughs> moves down, and he, he clearly is taking the corner, you know, not taking the ideal line. He's in the middle of the track, and he moves down to to take the corner. Uh, they touch. Uh, it seems like it seems like uh, Ray Hall backs backs down a little bit. It seem and then Bourdais spins out in front of him, but Ray Hall too can't make the corner either, and they both his, go into the wall. His suspension was damaged at that point. Yeah, so no matter how hard he would turn the wheel, he just couldn't get the car to turn. And I'll tell you that Graham Rahal was none too happy with Sebastian Bourdais. Now, the television camera immediately after the fact uh, was facing away from Sebastian Bourdais. So as Graham Rahal was popping out of his car quite quickly, I have never seen so Yeah, like, like he no-sold a crash. It wasn't that he just no-sold it. He, it came out like the car was on fire. But yeah. the only fire was in his head. And before we could actually know if Sebastian Bourdais was okay or not, Graham Rahal was up in his face. First to check and see if he was okay. Second to scald him and let him know, like, hey, what are you doing? It wasn't until after the replay from Rahal's point of view that we saw that, yes, both drivers were angrily gesturing at each other but in the moment i was kind of thinking what is graham doing going after a guy who we don't even know if he's all right which of course we weren't the only one to think that (laughs) and they were not the only ones caught up in that wreck as well felix rosenquist spun trying to avoid them graham uh jack harvey slammed on the brakes and just barely dodged that but 
as he was slowing down, Zach Feach could not slow down enough, and he got collected, as did Charlie Kimball. At Kimball's damage car, uh, his front wing actually was collected by his former teammate, Scott Ditson, which put him out of contention as well. And uh, from the last update we had, Zach Feach says he is banged up. He, he injured his knee. He is not yet clear to drive. He will be reevaluated going into next week's uh, Chevy duel in Detroit, which is our very next race. Um, so that brought out a, a caution and eventually a red flag that neutralized the race with 20 laps to go. I mean, for my money's worth, I think most of that was on Bourdain. And again, that's not really something you would see out of Sebastian Bourdain to just chop down on a dude like that. Yeah, like pretty much Sebastian Bourdain had said that he thought that Graham Rahal was going to back off. And you never want to put yourself in a position where you put your not only your entire race, but the other driver's entire race based on what you think someone else is going to do. No, and Graham Rahal was none too pleased about it. He, he respects Sebastian Bourdais as a driver, but, you know, he, he said it's, he respects Sebastian as a driver, but he didn't respect that move. At those speeds, that's how you kill somebody. I'm just not a fan of squeezing and putting people in those positions. And that took out quite a few good cars, cars that would have had contention for a top five finish. Um, and Chris, it also turned out to be a blessing in disguise for one driver who we thought would not be a factor at this late stage in the race. But as this happened during the middle of the final pit cycle, one driver suddenly out of nowhere shot up to the front of the field. Yeah, Takuma Sato um, had an issue with the right rear tire early in the race. Um, the mechanic couldn't quite get it on the, uh, on the car quick enough, and he had to go back in the pits to check to see if he had a loose wheel. It was a lap down in 31st place, fought his way back, and got on the lead lap during the Ericsson uh, caution. Then was the last car on track, well, second to last car on track to pit, and was actually on pit road when the when the uh, when the caution came out. Sato was able to, I think he beat Daly to the exit commit line out of the pits while Daly was slow on the track trying to avoid the incident, and so that's how Sato got, I think, to fifth place um, with fresher tires than the four cars in front of him. And ultimately, that's what made Sato's race. Um, he did a good job getting to that point. Uh, the one person it hurt the most is probably Spencer Piggott, because Piggott did not pit yet, and then actually pitted when the uh, caution flag came out after the red flag. So Piggott fell down quite a bit, unfortunately. But no, it was a big, big break for Sato. Right, and... Uh, we mentioned Piggott. Uh, he was was one of two drivers who had pitted under the closed uh, pit lane. Marcus Erickson came in as well. Also, uh, pit lane speed violations right around the same time for, for Ed Jones on lap 167 and uh, Jack Harvey on 176. Uh, those were two cars that were running up towards up in the top 10 for at times throughout the day and uh, ultimately lost some outside chances, especially for Piggott that because he had a car that made the fast nine and was running in the top 10 all day long. Yeah, the all day carpenter cars were running great early on, but for some reason they just could not quite seal the deal in the very end. Uh, although Ed was running in the top uh, portion of the field there late, but just that last stint where you need it all to come together just didn't quite have it for Carpenter. So if you watch the IndyCar series fast forward, the 30-minute recap of the Indianapolis 500, they show the final 13-lap shootout 
in its entirety with no cuts. We restart with with uh, with Alexander Rossi having taken the lead from Simon Paginot before the caution had come out and before the red flag had come out. But immediately, Paginot gets a perfect start and zooms past Rossi before they even get to turn one. And then that starts a sequence of three lead changes over three laps, because the very next lap, Rossi takes the lead going into turn one away from Paginot. Then the lap after that, Paginot takes the lead right back. And Paginot is able to stay in the lead because he's had the advantage of being able to run in clean air. And one worry that we had earlier on the race, would Paginot make it with fuel if it came down to a fuel mileage race? Because remember, with him running out in the front most of this race, he, we didn't know how his car was going to do in the draft, and he hadn't had a chance really to save fuel. But uh, because... Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Well, I was going to say, he was at 1.7 uh, seven laps down on fuel compared to Rossi and everybody else, but I think when Rossi had a, uh, he had a small delay on the fueling issue earlier on in the race, I think Rossi lost those seven laps in fuel trying to charge back up to Paginot. Um, that's how this race played out for the most part in the first half was a massive strategy gamble because there was a long period where there were no yellows. Right. At one point, we were on pace for the fastest Indianapolis 500 in history. Uh, Tony Kanaan's 2013 win uh, still holds that record. And uh, they, they weren't far off of it for most of it. They were above that mark. If not for the late caution at the end, I think they would have ultimately surpassed it. But yeah, with 11 laps to go and going into turn one, Simon Pagano takes the lead, and it looks like he's able to hold it because as much as Rossi is trying to get runs out of turns two and uh, turn four, Paginot is able to hold the inside line, and Rossi knows he wants to pass in the inside line, and so does Simon Paginot. He knows that's his best chance to get around. So you're thinking, right, Simon Paginot, he's done the deal, and Rossi is not going to get out onto turbulent air to make a move. But all of a sudden, with just a handful of laps to go, Rossi does finally get that run out of turn four that he's been wanting, and he's able to slipstream right up to the gearbox of Simon Paginot and take the lead with three laps to go in the race. And in the first two corners, he is pulling away. You'd think Rossi's done enough. He's got this race in the bag. But oh, it was not that simple, King. No, it was not that simple at all. Uh, I don't know. Like, every time that Pagano somewhat appeared to seem like he was on the back foot during the entire duration of the race, he always seemed to find, like, a higher gear. And when when you really think he's at his limit, he just finds a way to, you know, dig a little deeper and find a little bit more speed. Or maybe he was holding back to begin with. I don't know. <laughs> yes, because with a lap and a half to go, with Rossi still in the lead, Paginot fancies a move going into one, but he holds back. But that's okay, because Paginot knows his Chevy-powered car has enough horsepower. Even though they can't run it as rich as Rossi's Honda, Paginot knows with a good run out of turn two, which he got, he can draft right up to the gearbox. And coming around the outside, going into turn three, Simon Paginot takes the lead, which he would not relent. Rossi fancied a challenge on the final lap of the race, but in the end, Simon Paginot, Leading 116 laps, the 35-year-old from Montmelon, France, wins the 103rd Indianapolis 500. The 18th victory for Penske Racing in this storied race. And the fifth winner from five different continents in the last five years. 
That's right, we had Montoya win in 2015, Rossi in 2016, Sato from Asia in 2017, Will Power from Australia in 2018, and now Paginot from Europe in 2019. That's, yeah, geez, that, that just dawned on me, Chris. Well done. Someone call Thomas Schechter and get him out of retirement. <laughs> oh my goodness. They don't have race cars in Antarctica, do they? I don't think they have native Antarctica. <laughs> King, King, we need all the updates on the uh, the Antarctic Formula Four Championship. Um, we need you to send those our way. Unofficial, yeah. The mar- final margin of victory, two point two zero eight seconds. It is the seventh closest Indianapolis five hundred finish of all time. Man, I'm I'm forever gonna have that last lap, that last lap just seared into my mind. <laughs> Again, uh, if you watch Day of Classics, you would have heard Cam Buckley, who's a big Simon Pagano fan, crying on crying on live stream because his favorite driver won. Uh, everybody blasting and singing Marcel- La Marseille at the top of their lungs, um, and that one was that one was something that Pagano really needed. I know he needed the win at Grand Prix, but you know this ultimately sealed his future at Penske Racing, which. Again, before this month, was very much in question. And ironically, the man he edged out at the line was going to be the odds-on favorite to replace him should he have lost his seat at the end of the year. And then, of course, in speaking with Racer Magazine's Robin Miller, uh, when asked if Simon had his seat for 2020, Roger Penske replied, Are you kidding me? You you want to answer that question for me? Of course (laughs) he's going to come back. Oh, dear. If I may, one person that we should definitely uh, talk about with this race is John Menard. Um, he came to the Speedway in 1981 with Herm Johnson and was a massive supporter of the Indianapolis 500 and tried to win the race with the Menard uh, V6 engine, a Buick-derived V6 engine. And after his son won the Brickyard 400 in 2011, he still hadn't won the great race here, but now he can say that a Menard-sponsored car won the Indianapolis 500 an iconic name in Indianapolis 500 history. So really good on John Menard for actually having a car that won the Indy 500. That's true. That is that is very much true. Um, the best finish for a Menard-sponsored car up to this point was Vitor Mira in 2005, if you can believe it or not. Of course, with those Buick power cars, I still remember the days where they had cars that were one-off weapons for this race when they would finish with the likes of Tony Stewart and Ari Leyendyke and, of course, the late, great Scott Brayton. Uh, But as a team owner and as a sponsor for many years, he had never won this race until uh, Simon Pagano took his family's business to Victory Lane with a cold glass of milk. And, of course, the best thing out of all this is that Simon's dog, Norman, got to join in on all the post-race celebrations, and it was the best thing. (laughs) We're already going to start a petition to have Norman on the ticket for next year. I would say put... (laughs) Please! Oh my god, please. If you can't get Norman, a little tiny Norman Paginot engraved on the Board Warner Trophy, can we please get that photo of Simon and Norman together in Victory Lane as the trophy? As the uh, ticket, ticket, I should say, yes. (laughs) As the ticket, yes. That was was a great shootout. Again, if you haven't yet, please watch the fast-forward, see the final 13 laps, at least see the final four laps, because that was... That was genuinely one of the best Indianapolis 500s in modern history. And again, we were coming off a race where, you know, 
maybe a little bit pedestrian in the first year with the new Universal Arrow kit. Suffice to say, they raced a lot better this time this year than they did a year ago. Yeah, a lot better. A whole lot better. And of course, there were variable conditions that played into it last year. One of the hottest days on record. Cars didn't really know what to do with the setups of that car since they'd only had a few months of data with it. Um, but this was a much better race. 29 lead changes. Simon Pagano did lead the most laps um, and ended up winning the race by two tenths over Alexander Rossi and Takuma Sato. Uh, he had a spirited charge late on. He was with that draft with Pagano and Rossi. He had uh, gotten around Ed Carpenter. He'd gotten around Joseph Newgarden. Just didn't have it at the end to get past either one of them. But still, coming home to finish third after starting 14th and being a lap down at one point, that is nothing to scoff at at all. Not at all, especially when you consider the fact that, um, you know, the Ray Hall team last year and how they did it in Indianapolis when they had a couple of cars that were deep in the field, um, it was a great turnaround for them this year. I mean, they've had a great season overall this year when you look at the fact that they locked out the front row at Barber, Sock, Takuma won there, and you know, they've, they've had a better start to this year, and they're trying to get from that upper midfield tier into the you know, upper three that, you know, we have Penske, Ganassi, and Andretti, and they're just trying to push harder, so much harder. And now we're coming into a weekend in Detroit where Graham swept the weekend two years ago, and quite frankly, we're going to see them try and push that much harder. And let's face it, I think this when this race for Taku just validated what he's worked for this year because, you know, he hadn't had a couple, there was a couple races where he wasn't necessarily at his best, but Barber and then here showed that he still has it. And hey, don't forget those old guys. Pagano is in his mid 30s too. Right. Pagano just turned 35 this year. Takuma Sato turned 42 this year. And in a time where, you know, drivers like that, you would expect them to fall off. Again, Pagano is in the best form he's had since 2016. This is the best form Takuma Sato has shown ever in his career on a consistent basis. Yep. Of course, I uh, understated. Uh, really love the uh, the throwback My Jack special car uh, from the days of Eric Bachelard as driver and team owner of Conquest Racing. Um, now, of course, Pagano wasn't the only uh, Penske driver in contention for the win, as Joseph Newgarden led 21 laps and was a fixture in it. He took the lead from Pagano on track, but ultimately just could not get the car to hook together when it uh, in the last stages of the race, but still coming away with a fourth place finish that is very good for his championship bid again. Uh, not a win, of course. I know that first win will come. Good health and opportunities willing, but still holds on to second place in the standings by a single point behind your new points leader, Simon Pagano. We will run through the championship standings later on in our show. And you're thinking, well, where is the current Oval Master of the IndyCar Series? Where is Will Power? Well, he came back to finish fifth, but it was not as straightforward a deal as you one might think. Mm, yeah, there was... Mainly one, one large wrench in his Sunday at the Speedway. Right. Um, from his, from his, to quote from race, racer.com in his interview with David Phillips, race control was a disgrace. I slid into the pit stall, but I didn't hit my mechanic. He was leaning in, preparing to insert the fuel nozzle, and he brushed the car rather than the car hitting him. Race control took away our chance to win the race. It's a disgrace. 
and he spent most of the race buried in the pack before eventually recovering to finish fifth. But if not for that penalty for skidding in the bots, you'd have to feel like he would have had something for his Penske teammate and for Alexander Rossi at the end. Mm. Oh, man, that is I mean, that's uh, that, that is a tough break for Will. Um, you know, I, I, I could definitely understand a how he feels at that point because you know he felt like he would have had a car that could have taken back-to-back wins in indianapolis but still comes away with a good points day and with a last minute move around ed carpenter who ended up finishing sixth another great day at the office for indianapolis's favorite son but sadly still chasing that first indianapolis 500 victory um but still a very good day for ed carpenter one thing I think we should also uh, look at is the fact that we had so many different teams up there. It wasn't like one team was 100% dominant. Yeah, we had Penske finishing, I think, you know, Pagano was first. I think Newgarden was fourth and Power was fifth. But if you look at the fact that we had three different teams in the top three, we also had some other teams like lower down in the top ten. It wasn't like a one-size-fits-all um, or one-team-fits-all, dominates-all race here. Um, plus... We also had the fuel strategy issue where, you know, the Hondas were getting better mileage and the Chevrolets were all pinning earlier. So we had so many other variables in this race, it really made it compelling. Uh, despite, you know, some people saying, oh, the middle of the race is boring. No, it was actually pretty compelling if you look at the deeper layers of it. So, you know, full marks to everybody for making it also really safe there at the end. That is true. That is very true. Now, um, I want to talk about Santino Ferrucci. Now... Ten months ago on this show, I was part of a discussion where I was very disappointed at how Santino Ferrucci behaved at a Formula 2 race weekend in Silverstone. I thought he was immature, and I said some things that I would not apologize because looking back on it later in life, I'm sure he would agree. And he ended up in the IndyCar series. There was obviously much, much skepticism as to how he would perform. He started a rather protester in 23rd, but as several other rookies hit trouble... I will say this, Santino Ferrucci put in a Rookie of the Year caliber performance by going all the way to 7th place. And it was not an easy day at the office uh, for Mr. Ferrucci. Chris, I know you've been one of his biggest backers since he came to the series late last season. You've been a big believer in the in the untapped potential that he has. Um, take, us through his, uh, take us through his day. I wouldn't say backer. I'd say someone that actually looks at things a little bit more critically than maybe a couple of others that just, you know, blatantly just didn't ask any questions. Um, we, we're in a business where we have to ask questions, and I don't think a lot of people did ask questions after what happened at Silverstone last year. But, you know, going back to the race on on Sunday here, um, there were a couple of things that he did that really opened up a lot of people's eyes. First of all, Coming out of the pits, after one of his pit stops, he was right behind AJ Foyt Racing's Tony Kanaan. Now, Kanaan, for those who may not remember, was the 2004 IndyCar Series champion, the only driver that year that completed every single lap, and the 2013 Indianapolis 500 champion. Yeah, and he's a driver uh, that gives no quarter. Absolutely not. Uh, he has not been afraid to use the, uh, the block move or defending move, and... Santino was right behind him on his right-hand side, coming out of the pits. Ferrucci overtook him in the warm-up lane. Um, when you make Tony Kanaan lift, you've done something. 
And because <laughs> Kanan typically does not lift. And I, I tell you that, that was really mind blowing that you would actually, he would actually do something like that yeah. at that point. And that wasn't his only adventure on the apron, was it? Not? Oh, no, no, no. So we're looking at the, uh, the incidental lap. I think it was like 178. Where right. With Rayal, Rayal, Bourdain. Bourdain, everybody. Yes. And he just went and he, him and Hinchcliffe, Days of Thunder, their way through that wreck. I'm talking like iRacing wreck avoidance, like compilation worthy. And he basically mowed the grass in between the track and the warm up lane and got through it, where really a lot of other drivers might have, you know, tapped on the brakes and slowed down. He decided, up oh, the heck with this. He just sped up and went right around the inside there and went across the grass and actually did a good job keeping his car in a straight line. Um, he did a good job. And I think the other thing that we should look at also, that wasn't his only adventure in the North End because on the last restart of the race, Connor Daly was in between gears as the field was bunching up in front of him, and Ferrucci went underneath him to o- try and overtake for another position on track as the race went green. Uh, I don't think he got the position, but he ended up finishing seventh and as the highest finishing rookie. Yeah, as a lot of the other rookies who we'll talk about, they did not have such good weekends, let alone Patricia Ward, who, again, as we knew from last week, didn't even make the field. Uh, can I get, also give a shout-out as well, and we'll talk about this more uh Schmidt Peters and Motorsports have spotter Brian Robson, who's one of the best in the business. And with that wreck avoidance for Hitchcliffe, he certainly got his money's worth out of that. Yeah. Um, sometimes you'd rather be more, you know, lucky than good. Uh, in Hitchcliffe's case, that was def- that was a hundred percent what happened. Uh, he was very, very lucky with that. Um, I would probably want, I'd be willing to bet that the total distance that he avoided the wreck on both sides was probably less than a foot and a half, honestly. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so in rounding out the top 10 as we go through this field, uh, sort of in sequential order, um, good top 10 results for for Ryan Hunter-Ray, the 2014 winner in 8th. Zona Kanan, the aforementioned 2013 winner, uh, still came home in 9th. And what a day it was for Andretti Autosport 5th driver Connor Daly. I'm sure he was getting a nosebleed running this high in this race, which has always been unlucky for the native of Noblesville, Indiana, but not today. Not today. He finished 10th, and you might feel that was that was not the reward he should have gotten because he was running much higher in this field. He was running as high as P. He ran second on lap 171. Uh, that was the highest he got all day long. He didn't put a wheel wrong, and he... In my opinion, he did enough to earn a few more races this year. And hopefully if he wins the Lamborghini Super Trofeo Championship, he's in this year with Precision Performance Motorsports. He'll get even more races. But I think, quite frankly, he's done enough to earn a few more races with Andretti Autosport. Michael Andretti told me after the race that he was great to work with and that he he did a fantastic job all month long. Connor turned the fastest lap of the month on Fast Friday. And I think, quite frankly, he did about as good of a job as you can expect him to do, um, given the fact that he was just in a one-off drive. Great job, Connor Daly. That's right. Yeah, and if and if I'm looking at the results correctly, Connor Daly is the highest finishing one-off driver. He is. 
Yes, he is. Again, for a driver who had not driven since last August at Pocono, and these days is now known for being buddies with Alexander Rossi on The Amazing Race or palling around with former Colts punter Pat McAfee rather than being an IndyCar driver. You forget that at times there was a legitimate argument to be made that he was a more impressive rookie in 2016 than was Alexander Rossi, who won the Indianapolis 500 that year. And I feel like a result like that could easily bring back his confidence. And, you know, hey, with you know, it's it's not always a given that, you know, Ryan Hunter Ray and Mario Andretti will be there forever. And if they were looking towards the future, I'd say they've got a guy in waiting, Connor Daly, that could be ready for the task. And with that equipment, he, he could be primed to succeed. 100% agree. Or who, or who knows, maybe one of the other teams in the field are looking at expanding and might Connor might be ready-made driver to just plug in. Absolutely. Comeback story of the race, from my opinion. James Hinchcliffe, again, we know that he had to endure the last row shootout just to get in the race and avoid missing it for the second year in a row. From 32nd on the grid, he dodged the wreck and finished in 11th place. I wish we had Dre on here to, to, for, to get his thoughts on this, but what a magnificent drive from James Hinchcliffe to get that far up. When you look at Hinchcliffe, um, you have to figure, you know, he doesn't know exactly how well his car is going to be. And here's what I mean by that. When you wreck a super speedway car in qualifying and have your backup car be built in two and a half hours, you have not as much time to prepare your car for all the super speedway bits, the low drag bearings, the frictionless bearings. So you still have a little bit of uncertainty. Carb Day can help you out a little bit with figuring everything out. But with all the weather that took place, I mean, sure, it's the same for everybody with the fact that the track was completely drenched on Saturday. Um, and I know that because I ended up getting soaked on the way back to the media center from the museum. Um, you still don't know 100% how your car is going to handle because, yeah, you've had a week to prepare or three or four days to prepare. That still doesn't replace the fact that you were working on the car for months with all the body fit and everything else like that. So he may not have had the 100% confidence in his car. But when he was driving those those first stint, the first two stints, and I saw him climb up the leaderboard, what it told me was that hey, he knows what he has, he knows where he's good, and if he can just stick together the pits, his crew can stick the pit stops together, he can put together a full race, and ultimately he did that. Fantastic job from James Hinchcliffe as well, especially coming after a year where he got the pole position. Uh, well, sh- shoot, you look at twenty fifteen. Three years after his pole position. Yes. Four years after his near-fatal crash, and a year after he'd been Getting, bumped got the field. bumped, yes. So he's had a very tumultuous love-hate relationship with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but today was, or yesterday rather, was a very good day for Hinchcliffe. Top job. And of course, uh, if you haven't gone back, uh, Mike Tirico did a wonderful piece on the friendship between James Hinchcliffe and his uh, and his best friend and teammate Robert Wickens uh, that aired in the pre-race uh, in the pre-race broadcast. Um, We'll, we'll get into that. What I want to do is just hit pause for a little bit, take a few seconds, because we do have more to cover. So we're going to take a quick musical interlude, and we'll be back to cover more of the stories further back in the field. Some of the drivers who maybe didn't have as good a time in this race as they might have hoped, but still some interesting stories to come out of this race. We'll reflect, we'll debrief everything, and we'll be back to cover all that right after this.
Looking back past the, uh, the first third of the finishers, um, we'll get to uh, sort of uh, sort of a bit of controversy in the uh, a controversy in the pits. This wasn't the only pit lane incident, as we would come to know, but uh, there was a bit of a tangle up between uh, Elio Castroneves, the only three-time winner of the field, and one-off runner James Davison driving for Bellardi Bird Racing. Um, the two of them made contact and King. It didn't turn out well for either one of them. No, no, it didn't. And it obviously, they ended up penalizing uh, Catherine Evans for what had happened. And it it didn't feel like it was all Elio's fault. <laughs> yeah, there is, a, there is a bit of shared responsibility here because James uh, did react uh, rather adversely to missing his pit bots. And that's why he braked suddenly in front of Elio. I mean... But Elio was the one that was ultimately penalized for avoidable contact in the pit lane. Uh, he's buried down the field and ultimately finishes 18th. Somehow out of all this, James Davison out of nowhere came back to finish in 12th, which I believe uh, that's that's certainly better than he looked that this time last year with the same team. It was as good as he looked since he subbed for an injured Sebastian Bourdais two years ago at, go at Dale Coyne. And also, we should remember that uh, at that point, I'm not sure if it, it was the case later on, Davidson's pit road speed limiter was not working, so we had to do it NASCAR style. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so that begs the question, because Elio Castroneves finishing 15th, that was the worst result in a race where he was running at the flag. He's driven 19 Indianapolis 500s, and all of them driving for Roger Penske. But Penske did not answer if Elio was going to be back for 2020. He did say that Simon Pagano was going to be back full-time, but he wasn't committal on whether or not Elio Castroneves would get another run at the 500 in his fourth Indy win in 2020. Elio has gone on the record and said he does want to be back, and he is looking forward to the next M's around in Detroit, which he will be driving for Acura Team Penske. Um, are we looking at the... Uh, did we just see the somewhat underwhelming final act of one of Indy's and, and one of Indy's greatest performers. I don't think so. Oh, I, yeah, I don't think so. I, uh, I do believe that it, it's, if he's back next year, it will be in a Penske. I don't think Elio Castroneves would drive in the 500 with anyone else, but I'm not so certain. I think it, it, it comes down to a lot of other factors on whether Elio's back next year. But I'm pretty sure that it that all other things considered, Roger Penske wants Elio to be back next year. Yeah, because a, a couple of things to think about. You know, Elio's been a part of that team for 20 years now. And that's... That's that's still it He's blows been a my part mind. of that team longer than Colton Hurd has been alive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because if you'll remember on the tragic final day of the nineteen ninety nine cart season was when Roger Penske scrambled to sign Elio Castroneves because Greg Moore had suddenly passed away during the race. Um that, of course, caused a, a few headaches in court 10 years down the road, but that ultimately led to one of the most successful partnerships in IndyCar history. Um, and it would be strange not to see the two running together. Um, if Elio does come back with another team, would another team be able to provide him with as good as opportunity to win the Indianapolis 500? I don't think so. 
I don't think so either for no. one simple fact. No driver that has won the Indy 500 with Roger Penske has gone on to win the Indy 500 with another team. Yeah, so if you believe in in just the uh, the mere fact of historical anecdotal evidence, then you know if not with Penske, I'd, it'd be hard to imagine Elio Castroneves becoming one of those drivers who, in their late 40s, just comes out and runs out the string with other teams just because he feels like he wants keep wants to keep running this race as long as he can. Yeah, I think the the only way that we don't see Elio Castroneves back next year is if for some reason, which I believe is it's highly unlikely that this would happen, if Roger Penske signs another driver in a fourth car for a full-time season, I I just, and I I think it's highly unlikely that happens. Yeah, and after Paginot, uh shut the book entirely on him departing Penske, I don't see... I don't see them starting a fourth car, even if it is for Alexander Rossi. And I'll be completely honest. If I'm Alexander Rossi, I'm not going to leave Andretti Autosport. He has a great chemistry no, with that team. That's true. That is very, very true. I, again, I know it's driving for Roger Penske, but Andretti Autosport is not like a second-rate operation either. <laughs> Let's we forget that they won back-to-back five, three out of four 500s in 2014, 16, and 17, and one of those was with Rossi, and that's before he really got good as an IndyCar driver. Yep. Yeah, and it's, and it's, you know, in the 500, they're pretty much level pegging. Rossi may have not won last year. I may have not won this year, but three out of the 10 cars in the top 10 were Andretti Autosport yeah. cars. Same for Roger Penske. Cam points out in our uh, Discord chat that, of course, he has ties with Honda. I mean, apart from Hinchcliffe, he is one of their biggest spokesperson for IndyCar and Honda in general. And what does uh, Penske drive in IMSA? Acura's, which is Honda's performance brand. Yeah, and that's strangely enough yeah. how Rossi ended up getting the plus one gig in the IMSA championship. Yeah. So as I'm going through the rest of the lead lap finishers, we talked about Ed Jones, pit speed violation, drive through penalty, ultimately took him out of contention when he had a weapon of a car that qualified fourth. Same for Spencer Pickett. If not for pitting under a closed stop, he, I think he would have been missing it up in the top five and maybe, maybe challenging for that lead. Um... As we go down the rest of the lead lap finishers, a couple of surprises. Mateus Lice from 24th, finishing 15th. And how about the best ever result for the leading lady of the Brickyard, Pippa Mann, driving for USAC Team Clausen Marshall Racing. Fantastic work from <laughs> Pippa. It was a quiet month for that team. Uh, I, I looked at a lot of their stuff on the no sheets because... Some people that I've spoken with, you know, just, you know, between friends and other people were saying, yeah, she's not going to, she's going to get bumped, you know, she's driving for, you know, USAC team and never done it and blah, 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 blah. But they were really focused on just making no mistakes, being smart just before qualifying, made the show. And really they were running their own race. They, they didn't do what a lot of people did. They, they were focusing on just making sure that they get made all the right moves, checked all the right boxes off, and really it was rewarded by Pippa Mann's first ever lead lap finish in the Indy 500. She drove a smart race and should be commended for that, finishing one spot ahead of Scott Dixon. That's right. When you finish ahead of Scott Dixon and on the lead lap in any race, let alone the Indianapolis 500, that is a tremendous effort. And again, this is for a team that is founded by 
founded in part and principal owner is Tim Clausen, of course, the father of the late Indy 500 competitor and USAC legend Brian Clausen. That uh, that campaign was put out there to promote organ organ donorship, organ donations, and Pippa Man was a was a great fit for this team. And you feel like, yeah, we haven't seen a team jump from USAC to IndyCar in a in a long long time, not since a bygone age. But you know, if and I qualified Fernando Alonso. That's right. They they got in <laughs> safely on day one. McLaren Racing could not. That was a great performance. Again, Scott Dixon, any chance he had, would have come unraveled. Uh, finished 17th, but ran over Charlie Kimball's front wing uh, trying to get around the crash, and that ultimately ended any hope he had of winning the race. So we go through. Uh, now, there were uh, plenty of other drivers who uh, had their own uh, heartbreaks. Yeah, at a casual 180 miles an hour, Scott Ditson hit his former teammate's front wing. That's uh, that's not a good way to go about the rest of the day. No. <laughs> there were uh, plenty of other drivers who uh, had trouble early on in the race. Three laps in, the Gearbots gave out on uh, the pre-race favorite as the top rookie, Colton Herta. Three laps in, and the Gearbots just goes. Yeah, it was... I don't know, it was... It was disappointing. I I wouldn't say heartbreaking, but it it felt obviously when you have mechanical failure so early in the race, it's it's you don't even have the opportunity to imagine what could have happened because you had no running out there in the race. Yeah, that's true. Um, two of our great fairy tale stories also suffered adversity in the uh, in the first half of the race. Ben Hanley retired after 54 laps, again, with a team that had come together just days before the start of the IndyCar season at St. Petersburg, a car that we had pretty much written off as a driver that wouldn't even make the field. He did make the field, and he did run 54 laps, but the car just gave out. Chris, do we know what happened with the Dragon Speed car? I think there was a drive shaft issue, because when he tried pulling out of the pits, the left rear wheel was trailing smoke, and the right rear wheel I didn't think was doing anything, but... I'll go ahead and admit it. I was one of the people that thought that he wouldn't make the show, but he did. Uh, full marks of Dragon Speed for putting together a car that made the race. But uh, they weren't, like you said, they weren't the only car that had a fairy tale car that had issues during the race, were they? Right. Um, Junkos Racing and Kyle Kaiser were the story of the last row shootout. And when they bumped Fernando Alonso from the field, a team that had sudden, that had lost their sponsor before the month of May suddenly kept getting nothing but sponsorship offers with email company 250OK and Haggerty Auto Insurance. We saw decals from the River Plate Soccer Club de- adorn the green and orange machine of Kyle Kaiser. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, 72 laps into the race, Kaiser spun um, coming out of turn one. Kaiser overcorrected and spun back and struck the wall, and that ended their race after just 71 laps completed. And that is a great shame when you consider all the work that they had put in just to make that program possible that they didn't even see halfway through it. Talk to Ricardo Yukos after the race. Fifteen companies. Came on board to sponsor that car. Yep, it's... Man, I mean, sadly, make it past halfway. 
But man, at least they got paid by a lot of companies. That's true, and I hope that those companies would make this more than just a one-off effort. Again, I suggested for all the teams that were backing the sponsors that were backing McLaren's entry, you know, if they didn't make the race, they should throw their weight behind Junkos. And I'm glad that some companies have come in and sponsored the team, and I'm hoping you know, that we'll see more of them later this year. I know IMSA is their big priority in DPI, um, but I would love to see this team come back for more races later on in the season. That, I believe, closes the book on... the. It doesn't quite close the book on things at the Indianapolis 500, because, of course, uh, this was also, for American audience, the first race of a new era. It was the first race of the NBC Sports era, at the Brickyard, we, uh, I know Chris, you were there. You had the, you had the cover. You were there at the track. We watched the race on television. King, what did you make of, uh, of NBC's first time covering the 500? Ooh, I, I always feel like anytime there's a change in era, there's a bit of an effect of I'd like to call it, you know, that breath of fresh air effect where, where things appear to be better just because they're different, but. In a lot of different measures, the coverage was just objectively better. That's right. First of all, by keeping the team intact of Lee Diffie, Townsend Bell, and Paul Tracy, um, they they have the best announced team in North American motor racing. Uh, Lee Diffie was so happy to get the opportunity to call this race, um, taking taking you know the spot that was once held by. Know, the great Jim McKay, Paul Page, Bob Jenkins, Alan Bestwick, among so, so many others. And he did a fantastic job. Townsend Bell and Paul Tracy were spot on with their analysis. And, you know, the the other hosts that they had on the broadcast, you know, late presenter Mike Tirico, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Rutledge Wood, Danica Patrick. Danica was the revelation of that of that team, you know, because uh, many people were unsure of, oh, it's it's Danica being a lead announcer are you sure we need this but no she was on point all weekend dale earnhardt jr brought energy mike tarico was so happy to be there and it showed this was a breath of fresh air and it was rewarded by the television ratings going up from a 3.4 the last race broadcast by apc to a 3.86 now granted we're not going to have the television ratings that we did before the split but that's still a fantastic job to go up 15 percent over the previous year yeah 15% 15% massive jump and I I forgot who I saw say this on Twitter but someone compared Danica Patrick to Tony Romo and I I was like at first it, it was it was funny it was a little bit of a joke but it, like that comparison couldn't be any more apt right and as many people pointed out the commentary is so much better because uh I know that ABC had called this, had covered this race for over 50 years but uh, it was very apparent that Alan Bestwick was doing a a pretty uh, a Herculean job of carrying that broadcast in the last few years um, with Lee and Townsend and PT. It was it was a different dynamic. Hundred ten percent. The other thing is that you know they're together for the rest of the year, uh, and ABC had only their guys there for like four or five races. So you have more of a time to build up your dynamic. So yeah, great job by all of them. Absolutely, absolutely. So. When we get right down to it, because we are going to cover some other things that happened in um, in the week leading up to the race. Of course, we got support races, uh, the net step and cockpit protection. But I want to know, um, and I want to ask Chris first, because you've been to 24 of these races in a row. So that goes back to the first race. 96. 
Yeah, so that goes back to the start of what of today's IndyCar series. You've seen it all. You've seen a lot of evolution in the cars. You've seen whole different generations of drivers and teams come in. Um, of the races that you've seen, where does this 2019 103rd running of the Indy 500 stack up among them? Probably in the top, of the ones I've witnessed personally, I'd probably put it in the top five. I'd still say that number one for me would be either 2016 or 17, because 2016 being the 100th running, you know, it had all the pageantry and everything like that, and, you know, a lot of everything unexpected taking place. In 2017, you literally had everything take place, um, you know, with the whole Alonzo thing and, you know, the... One car airborne, to quote Nick Yeoman. And it, it, even a stop for weather. I mean, 2017 really had everything in it. Um, I would say this will probably rank third uh, among those, with 2014 being fourth. Um, but yeah, it was a fantastic you know, race overall because you had the strategy subplot. You had you know the Penske versus Andretti subplot with uh, Andretti with um, Pagano and uh, Rossi, um, really the only thing, and I'm, I'm not sure if we, if we, if we did bring this up, but forgive me, I'm, I'm still in that post Indy 500 hangover. So if we did talk about this, I apologize for bringing it up again. Did we mention Marco? Oh no, we did not. Mention we did not Marco. mention Marco, and there was a couple other things that I wanted that we wanted to mention. Marco, Marco had a difficult race, uh, retro paint scheme. Honoring his grandfather Mario's 50th anniversary with a with a replica of his 69 car. Nice. Um, but it wasn't a nice day at the race for Marco Andretti. He tried to replicate fin- too much of the win by going almost as fast. Oh, no. Goodness. Five laps down. It's like, has, has, has anyone been able to find out why Marco was so off the I 12 know. pit stops. He had 12 pit stops, so I'm thinking he must have had recurring mechanical issues. Um, there was also one other story that we forgot to mention and something and probably the most frightening moment of the race. Uh, Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan racing mechanic Chris Mino getting struck by a wayward tire during a pit stop for his driver, Jordan King. Oh, yeah, that was not a pretty sight. And ooh, like I know reports came out that that the mechanic is okay. Yes. I think he broke his he broke his fibia. Yes, that's correct. He had just had surgery to repair his lower his left leg. Um, so, Chris, if if we're, if on the off chance that you're listening to this, please uh, please get better soon. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a difficult day for for Jordan and his team. Uh, uh, King, for what it's worth, finished twenty fourth, two laps down. Andretti was five laps down. Went to the pits twelve times and finished twenty sixth. Um, it's kind of frightening when you consider, and we'll get into this with the Freedom 100, that uh, his cousin Jarrett arguably had a better shot to win in Indianapolis two days prior. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably a, a fair thing to say. I mean, I, I hate it for Marco personally. I mean, yeah, I we've all the memes have come out about you know how you know he only shows up really for Indy and everything like that, but. I, I had high hopes because of everything about his grandfather's 50th anniversary win. Some people were saying that he was uh, there was an issue with center of pressure. I don't know. All I know is that he he had he even said it. It was the worst day of his career, and I agree with him. It it really was, and it's really a shame because you know so many things were riding on you know 
with the anniversary of his grandfather's win. His grandfather was on the silver and bronze badges. And I, I hate it for him because this was the day that he needed to shine. And ultimately, he didn't have the equipment to do it. Um, and it's not the first time that he's had that issue, too. Because I think in 2016, they put the wrong the tires on the wrong side of the car. In 2017, I think he had uh, another issue with the car setup. He had this, the bad one this that year. He had an, a wreck in 2012, I think it was. He's, he's had issues year after year, but he's also had great runs there. But... The year that he needed a great run this year, it just didn't happen, and I feel bad for him because he had there were all the pageantry, all the events that Mario had done, and it just it just wasn't there for him today. I hate it. Mm-hmm. And of course a uh, and of course a wonderful documentary produced by NBC, uh, Drive Like Andretti, which had been airing in the weeks uh, leading up to the race. It was it was brilliant. But yeah, the only thing that I've found so far was from the morning call of Allentown, where uh, where Marco Andretti complained of front wing problems, was already three laps down by the halfway point of the race, and he wasn't the only uh, the only Eastern Pennsylvania native to struggle. Sage Karam was also. Uh, was also really, really struggling for pace, and um, I believe he ended up 19th a lap down. Um, King, you know, you've done four of these Day of Classics, um, and the Indianapolis 500 has been integral to all of them from the first year, and don't you feel stupid now, Chris, to just... (laughs) To last year, where our dear friend Zoe Hamilton screamed at the top of her lungs because Will Power finally broken through with his first Indy win to just this past year, just 24 hours ago, when Cam um, cried his eyes out when Simon Pagina won. Um, of the Indianapolis 500s you've seen, was was this one of the better ones? Yeah, I would, I would almost say verbatim what, what Chris said, but yeah, this is definitely in the top five of recent Indianapolis 500s. It was that good. It it literally went down to the last lap. And partly one of the reasons why the Indianapolis 500 is so special is that, in theory, up until that last lap, anyone in the top six could have won this race. Like, a multitude of events could have taken place that could have led anyone from from Simon Pagino down to Ed Carpenter winning this thing. And that's why people love this race. It's engaging flag to flag. That's true. And of course, King, you'll appreciate all the French-related facts. It was the first French-born <laughs> driver since French-born Brazilian Gilles de Ferran won in 2003. Of course, yes, <laughs> French-born Swiss Gaston Chevrolet won in 1920. But to find the first French-born French national to win the race, you'd have to go back to 1914 and René Thomas in his Delage. Yes, and surprisingly enough, in 1920, when Gaston Chevrolet won the race, uh, uh, René Thomas finished second right behind him, and a- trying to get his second 500 in his third attempt, uh, just like one Alexander Rossi. And remember... Who was Simon Pagino's engine supplier for the race? <laughs> Chevrolet. That's right. He was doing it for Chevrolet in more ways than one. <laughs> uh, Though, f- fun fun history trip to the history of Chevrolet. Uh, Chevrolet was co-founded by Gaston's older brother, Louis Chevrolet. And by 1914, Louis Chevrolet had disagreements 
with Chevrolet the company and had sold his shares in the company and co-founded Frontenac with his with his two other brothers Gaston and Arthur Chevrolet and the and the car that Gaston had won in was a Frontenac. You know, as we're closing the book on our our debriefing, our unpacking of the Indianapolis 500, I've I've got to I've got to agree with Chris and I've got to agree with King. Um, last year's race was still very good, but you know it was missing that that extra something that I felt. It was it was a commanding win for Simon, but even still with that dominance, it didn't ever feel boring. You know, maybe there were some points where it lulled in the middle stages of the races, but especially at the end, you know, it, it really woke you up. It was one of the better Indianapolis 500s from a from a perspective of sheer uh, sheer excitement and and strategy as well. Uh, it's it's you know I'm glad that I got back into the sport. I'm glad that I have this great generation of drive the, here taking in part of this great generation of drivers and teams all competing for this race and. You look at the the pop and pageantry that goes into this race, from the 6 a.m. cannon fire to the parade the day before. It's one of the few races where it takes weeks, literal weeks, months of preparation to prepare for just this one race. Um, It's something that not a lot of racing events still have. Contrast this with Monaco. Yes, there is a lot of history and lineage and celebrity star power, and all the teams and drivers in Formula 1 want to win that race. But if you strip away, you know, the setting, the venue, and the history, it just feels like another race in the Formula 1 calendar. Indianapolis 500 is different, and you feel that all the way from the two-hour buildup, the playing of taps, the performance of back home again in Indiana, to how it felt for Simon to finally taste that cold glass of milk in Victory Lane. It was, it was one of the better ones, and... That's yeah. it's maybe if it doesn't go down as one of the best now, it'll certainly be remembered as one of the best many years on down the road. Yeah, I, I, I'd say to me this year, one of the things that stuck out to me, one of the big things uh, that stuck out to me that shows the big difference between Monaco and Indianapolis us talking about this being the new era for NBC. Uh, one of the things to me that kind of dulled the the spectacle of Monaco is the fact that I think about thirty years ago they had shortened the race to make it more exciting for TV. Mm-hmm. The fact that Monaco is no longer the traditional hundred lap duel that it's supposed to be a test for the drivers. While Indianapolis is the other way around, TV works for Indianapolis. Yeah, Monaco just doesn't work for TV. Well, we'll get into our other show. <laughs> Again, just to, just to put a neat little bow on everything, a great race. If you have the means to watch the full thing, uh, if you have an NBC Sports Gold Pass or you bought the, uh, the radio rebroadcast, go ahead and watch and listen back to it. Hell, if you can only take in the Fast Forward on IndyCar's YouTube channel... Go out of your way to do so right now if you haven't done so already. I believe IndyCar will actually post the full race on YouTube in about three or four days as well. Nice. So that is uh, that is okay. very good to hear. If they are indeed going to go ahead and post the race in full, uh, that's a great move on their part. Uh, once the race is up on full, if it is up on full, you should absolutely go out of your way to do so. 
Um, after this quick musical interlude and a break to reset ourselves, there were some other things that happened in the days building up to the Indianapolis 500. We got our first glimpse at the Nets' generation of cockpit protection and, of course, the support tickets, including the Freedom 100. And we'll be back with all that right after this. One thing I will say, though, is that Indianapolis is missing an opportunity by having a Things Left Behind in the Coke Lot thread, just like Talladega has with their own Things Left Behind (laughs) in the Infield thread. Things Left Behind in the Snake Pit. But even better. No. I don't want to see what the Coke Lot looks like right now. Wait, shouldn't it be the Pepsi Lot? (laughs) No. Okay, yeah, so... Yeah, for those of you who don't know, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway signed an exclusive pouring contract with uh, Pepsi as the exclusive beverage supplier for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Even though I believe the Holman George family still owns a, um, a, a Coke distributing plant, a Coke bottling plant. That ought to be interesting moving forward. Now, cockpit protection has, and for very good reason, become a talking point as to how different series would approach um, better protecting their drivers. You know, we think of, you know, just in the IndyCar realm in recent years, when we lost Justin Wilson, Pocono in 2015, we lost Dan Weldon, Las Vegas in 2011. Of course, not too far, the death of Jules Bianchi is still in a lot of people's mind. And, you know, many different open wheel racing series are coming up with their own solutions. Um, It seemed, um, and the one that is most prevalent in single seater racing now is the Halo device, the titanium ring that fits over the driver's heads. Though there was a more aesthetically pleasing alternative in the in the aero screen, which was developed by Red Bull Advanced Technologies, and later further developed by by IndyCar as the as the windscreen concept. But on Friday, we did get an announcement that Red Bull Advanced Technologies would partner with IndyCar to develop the aero screen, which combines the aero screen, the big giant windshield above and in front of the drivers' faces with the titanium structure of the halo. And that news broke on Friday during the car before the carb day celebration. So, um, Chris, I did want to ask you first, because I know one of the things that was a concern about IndyCar adopting the halo was, uh, was how it would work with high bank ovals like Iowa Speedway and Texas Motor Speedway, where once you get in the high bankings, it's, you can, run the risk of losing sight of all the cars on the inside because of that support beam around the driver's heads. It looks like they have found uh, a, a solution to it by raising the height of the, uh, the the structure around the aero screen. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I did not like the Halo solution of Formula 1 is because of that and also driver extraction. Uh, they moved the, the vertical portion of the Halo up a little bit further and... They tested it with Scott Dixon in the simulator, and apparently it was not an issue. Um, there, however, driver extraction still is a concern for me personally with this device. That's my only thing against it. I think that the Halo concept with the windscreen is probably the best solution. But I mean, as I said, the um, the sightline is made. We still need to check to see how it will work on an actual test. It's only been tested virtually; it hasn't been tested in all actuality. 
Uh, if it does save drivers lives, I, I am okay with it. Um, but of course, you know, we still have all the variables to work out. And also this device is an add on to the current IndyCar. When the new car does come around, it will have a new design that incorporates the windscreen 2.0 concept. That's what I'm going to call it. Um, integrated with it instead of it being just a simple add-on so it'll be interesting to see how that looks um i think your friend looks badass i think it looks makes the cars look more like fighter jets which is oh yeah pretty cool like um, uh, one of our patreon backers tony compared it to a to a top fuel dragster yeah um and i and of course you know people are saying you know oh it should have happened years ago years ago uh the indycar series and indycar they don't take driver safety lightly they want to make sure they explore all of their options that they test things extensively which is why they didn't put the first windscreen on because it was not actually strong enough that's why they're going with this device right now um i think it's going to look good when it's on the cars Let's just see how the drivers like it. The other thing we need to look at is the fact that the drivers, you know, people say, oh, it's not pure. It's not open cockpit. Well, if you look at the Indy cars of the late 1980s, a lot of those cars, you could only see the very top of the helmets as the drivers were sitting in them. So they've had this before. Let's not forget that. This isn't anything new. Right. And um, I want to go back to the uh, – I know we, we shouldn't promote um, – satirical news sources but the lug nut came up with an article that said that indycar has developed a windscreen to deflect away comments from angry old men <laughs> and, and i true. think it's and i and i think it's and i think it's 100 percent accurate because a lot of the people that are upset about this are mostly older people or the people that think that indycar should have done this a lot sooner and quite frankly shut up now yeah it's like we we couldn't do it sooner because we we just didn't know how to make something like this, you know, a couple yeah. years ago. It was, it was the same thing with how the safer barrier came to be. It took years of research, and sadly, we didn't implement until um, several drivers in American oval racing had lost their lives already. And we'd had plenty of close calls before that. Uh, now, King, this uh, aeroscreen is an impressive piece of kit. How much is the load bearing expected to be in these tests? Uh, absurdly, absurdly high, where, uh, they estimated that it could take a load up to 150 kilonewtons, which is, you know, uh, a force of, of 30, <laughs> of 34,000 pounds. So, so hypothetically, what would 30, what would a 3,400,000 pound impact look? Uh, I think... Doing the rough numbers, I estimated to be like if you took two indie cars and like just dropped it straight down from like a height of like twenty feet on top of that car. My goodness, I hope we never have to come into a situation where we would see two indie cars dropped on top of one indie car. But it's glad to know that you have <laughs> that peace of mind that it can sustain that kind of impact. Um, so that was good to see. Again, it looks badass. You know, if it if it performs well at high banked ovals like Iowa and Texas, even better. And and that's uh, that's the protection that these drivers need. And uh, Scott Ditson's uh, feedback of it was positive. And of course, he was the driver that tested the last generation windscreen concept at Phoenix in 2018. Now, of course, the Indianapolis 500 is the greatest spectacle in racing, but it is not the only racing event that happened at the Brickyard. 
this past weekend because Friday we got the race that always seems to over deliver no matter how many or how few cars there are in the field. That's right, the Indy Five, the Indy Lights Freedom One Hundred. King, you want to take this over? Oh God, I Freedom One Hundred. It took place while I was at work. Well, uh, I had to go to work during the Freedom One Hundred, so I only saw the start. Uh, I saw the start most of the race, and then I had to watch the finish after. I watched half of it at work, then watched the other half of it as I was writing and working on other things. But I'll tell you, this was a this was a good race. But it didn't start off so good for a couple of. Uh, a couple of the plus ones in the field. First, Jared Andretti spun on the warm-up laps, almost doing a Roberto Guerrero, but um, he did recover and rejoin the race. So he did a fleet gosh instead. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, that The, the Rene Tomas stat is, is actually the thing that I looked over in the starting field as they went over Philippe Gosh. That was about the only notable thing about this 1992 appearance, fun fact. Um when we got racing, we had a frightening crash between one of the other plus ones. Um, short track star Chris Windham and, and uh, David Malukas, one of the other rookies in the field, crashed together. And Windham's car rode the uh, rode the top of the wall and almost got into the catch fest. Thankfully, both drivers were okay. But uh, Chris, I believe uh, the other Chris, Chris Windham, was uh, quite upset at this impact. Well, you can understand that because he... Um <laughs> let's back up in time 24 no 12 hours uh thursday night at the indiana state fairgrounds we had the 64th and final hoosier 100 at the indiana state fairgrounds because the state fairgrounds board is converting the dirt surface to an all-weather limestone surface for harness training uh chris windham was leading the race on lap six i believe it was his right rear tires shredded apart on the main stretch and he went flipping around and spinning around like brishnikov on amphetamines uh, six times up and over, or seven times up and over, climbed out of the car, and he was all right. Coming to the Freedom 100, lap one, or, well, actually lap one was under yellow, but lap two, uh, Maluka spins, winner gets in front of him, and ultimately, you know, he's in the he's in the fence, and it was the second time in two years that he's had an Indy Lights crash at the Speedway, um, and really it wasn't that good for Blardy Auto Racing as a whole because Aaron Tielitz, one of his teammates, was in the pits with a broken axle before the race even began. Went out later, five laps down, and finished the race as, of course, five laps down. But still, Wyndham had that whole situation go on, uh, was kind of ticked off because he had nowhere to go and wasn't able to show what he's able to do in a car with wings. And if I may, with your express permission, Mm -hmm. that night at Lucas Oil Raceway, he was running in the Dave Steele Carb Night Classic for USAC, uh, I believe it was Silver Crown Cars. Yes, Silver Crown. Yes, Yes, that was the showcase event. And had a part failure in turn one, late in the going, and went off into the turn two wall and crashed for his third crash in a day. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Oh, That's why I tweeted, Chris Windham, please take an Uber or a Lyft home. (laughs) Oh. Poor, poor guy. I, I'm, I, I would love to see him back. He's he's not had a, a, a great run of luck at this event. Should we forget he, he crashed in practice and didn't even get to start last year's Freedom 100 when he was entered. Um, but we got once we got into the race itself, we had, you guessed it, another Freedom 100 where the lead was changing hands so fast that only Tony DeZeno could keep up with it. In yep. fact, I'll just go through the lead change summary um, from lap 12 when Renus VK took the lead for the first time. 
the lead change went VK12, Ryan Norman lap 13, Renus VK takes it back on lap 19, Norman takes it back on 20, VK takes it back on 23, Norman takes it back on 24, VK takes it back on 26, Norman takes it back again on lap 29 until we get almost the second major pileup of the race when Toby Sowery makes contact with Robert McGinnis and... Robert McGinnis may have had the save of the weekend across any category of racing in this field. Yeah, Toby uh, was underneath him. McGinnis was passing on the outside. Uh, the two had light contact, and then um, McGinnis was sideways. Sowery hit McGinnis's left front wheel ever so slightly, which turned McGinnis straight. McGinnis kept going, and everyone in turn one collectively lost their damn minds. Um, and in fact, everyone in the media center was the same way too, because we were wondering how in the hell that happened. Um, McGinnis was furious after the race for obvious reasons. He had a car that could have won, but I think with the uh, damage to his tires, he could not contend. I went up to him after the race. So I'm, when he was walking to the garage area, I said, Hey, walk and talk. His answer was simply, Nope. <laughs> talk with Toby Sowery after the race. And, uh, he was he was glad to talk, although he said that you know he and McGinnis talked about it. Uh, and in fact, I'll tell you what: if you give me about fifteen seconds, I can actually dig up the quote that he gave me that I think you might find pretty good. Yes, and as we're doing that, I mean, after the uh, the yellow flag uh, was withdrawn, it ended up becoming it what it became a five car lead draft for the win of the race. But it looked like it was going to come down to. Um, Ryan Norman was going to be one of the favorites. He had led the most laps. He's, a vet, he's one of the few veteran drivers in the field, and it looks like this race was going to be his. Uh, Chris, were you able to find that quote? Yes. Um, I said, so in my article that I wrote about the Freedom 100, I said, Sowery sought out McGinnis, but didn't get far with the New York native. Quote, I said sorry to him, but he's not happy, Sowery said. If he wants to be grown up about it and put it in the past and actually see it from my side, then happy days. If not, it doesn't bother me. Luckily, we both ended the race. I don't think he had the ultimate pace anyway, so it didn't affect him or me. Unquote. Yeah, and Sowery was sent to the back for that, uh, for avoidable contact, but he only needed four laps to get back up to the lead pack of the field and become a contender for the win. So too was Dalton Kellett, who, in the many years he's been in Indy Light, still looking for his first win. So it was Norman, it was Renus VK, the super rookie coming out of Indy Pro 2000, and was Toby Sowery charged the way back. It was Kellett. And as low as fifth in that time in that pack was Oliver Askew, uh, the previous USF 2000 champion, another rookie in the field. He was down to fifth at that point, but with just a few laps to go, he blasted his way up to second. And on the final lap, he got a draft off the back of Ryan Norman, caught up to him and passed him and took the win of the race by just 67 ten thousandths of a second. Seven thousandths of a second separating them and I believe what is only the seventh closest finish in Indy Lights history. <laughs> the fourth closest finish in the Freedom 100. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Lord. Seems like an eternity, doesn't it? Seems <laughs> like an eternity again. And this, of course, the race that gave us the famous four-wide finish in 2013. Um, to quote Askew after the race and speaking with Mark Landening of Racer, this seems so surreal. I've never raced in front of so many people in my life. Oh, 
Oh god, like just looking at the the photo finish, the margin of victory was pretty much the uh the length of the front wing. That was all that decided. That was it. The, the length of the front wing was all that decided that race. The Freedom 100 consistently overdelivers. Uh, from what I've heard uh, the uh, the other Roads Indy events at the uh, the Carb Night Classic um let's just say the the lead fight was not as entertaining. The lead fight wasn't as entertaining, but the mid-pack stuff was actually pretty good. Uh, I'll just gloss over it pretty quickly. Indy Pro 2000 was basically Daniel Frost just being ice cold. Doing it for Singapore, obviously. Well, no last on that. I'm sorry. Um, in his exclusive autosport entry, um, he basically waxed the field over and let every lap. Um, only one caution when teammate Nikita Lestoshkin did not pull into the infield on the backstretch when his engine just... Uh, quit midway through the race uh usf 2000 the first step on the road to indy was actually a little bit more entertaining not for the lead but for the mid for the uh final spot in the podium battle when alex baron not the indy car driver alex baron but the french the french born driver to british parents driver for legacy autosport was he started i think fifth he was trying to pass for like third place alongside manuel cabrera and they were trying to lap Bruno Tomaselli. His car bumped Cabrera, sending Cabrera and Tomaselli to the wall. And he ended up getting, I think it was second place by the time everything was done. Mm-hmm. Um, Cameron Shields, also from Toowoomba, Australia, like some guy, Will Power, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah, he the ended the streak. He ended the streak in USF 2000 because Braden Eves had won the previous four before then. Exactly. And not only that, uh, Cameron Shields actually had Will Power on FaceTime after the race. Power actually congratulated him <laughs> as he got out of the car on FaceTime. So a uh, couple of other notes. It was also Newman Walks Racing's first ever win in the road to Indy for the team for, that was founded by Paul Newman and Eddie Walks, who was on hiatus for a while uh, after Paul Newman's death. And another note... Um, well, a couple of drivers were pretty frustrated in the middle of the race because a driver for Jay Howard Driver Development, Matt Round Garrido, uh, was not doing himself any favors, allowing lap, allowing lead lap cars by. Um, and in fact, he ended up getting a penalty for a pit road drive-through penalty for uh, for blocking. Um, a couple of quite a few drivers in the lead lap were not happy with him at all. Um, it was entertaining to say the least when you see one driver shaking his fist angrily at. Um, at Ron Garrido trying to get around him on the main stretch. So, yeah, not too good for him. But on the bright side, um, Shields did a wonderful job getting Newman Walks their first win. Also, commiserations to uh, Miller Vinatieri Motorsports. Jack William Miller running in seventh place in his first ever oval race. Crashed in turns three and four late in the going. But uh, other than that, every driver was okay. That is good to hear. Uh, as we close out our show, let's go through the championship standings in the NTT IndyCar Series after the Indianapolis 500. By way of taking pole position and by winning the 103rd running of the Indianapolis 500, Simon Paginode is your new championship leader with 250 points, and he leads Joseph Newgarden at 249 by a single championship point going into the duel oh. at Detroit. It's Penske 1-2 at the top. Where have, where have we heard this before? Alexander Rossi remains third in the standings um, at 228 points. Takuma Sato, with his great day, maintains fourth in the championship at 203 points. 
He is tied at 203 with Scott Ditson ahead on countback. Ditson, fifth place. Will Power is sixth in the championship standings. Ryan Hunter Ray is seventh on 157 to Power's 184. James Hinchcliffe on 145 points at eight, ahead of Spencer Piggott in ninth on 133 points. Your top rookie in the standings is Santino Ferrucci in 10th on 129 points. Sebastian Bourdais, his teammate at Dale Coyne Racing, 11th on 124. Graham Rahal, 12th on 123. 13th, Jack Harvey, 13th in the standings on 118 points. Brilliant opening stance into the season. And he's not going to be at Detroit. Oh, man, that is a major, major shame. That was one of the 10, one of the few races that the team was skipping this year. Uh, Meyer Shank Racing only committed to doing 10 races, and the first one that they were going to miss was going to be uh, Detroit. Unless, of course, somehow, someway, Michael Shank decides, the hell with it, we're going to go anyway. You know, that's a that's a fair point. I would love to see it, but looking unlikely, and again, that's a real shame because Harvey's driven brilliantly to start the season. Ed Jones also had 118 points. He's in 14th place. He's one point ahead of Felix Rosenquist in 15th. I'll tell you, a driver who has dropped like a lead balloon in the standings, and that's Colton Herta down to 16th place after his win in Coda. He has not finished a single race since. He is a he- he is tied with Tony Kanaan at 17th and his AJ Foyne Enterprises teammate, Mateus Leist, 18th on 108 points. Marco Andretti, 19th on 105. Zach Beach, 20th on 83 points. Marcus Erickson, 21st on 81 points. He is the last of the full-time runners save for... Matt Stilton, who missed the 500 and is down in 24th position on 59 Damn, points. That's how much... It's insane that Ed Carpenter could show up for one race and be ahead of Max Stilton in the standings. He's going further down the standings, yes. Yes, Patricio Ward ahead of them. And if you look all the way down at the very bottom of the NTT IndyCar Series standings, there's one driver who is scoreless and will remain scoreless unless he, of course, decides to enter another race this season. 36 in the standings, number two in the Autosport Top 50 rankings, and number one in my cold, dead, jaded heart, Fernando Alonso on McLaren Racing. Hey, 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 you can always claim that it never happened, because technically he's not classified in the championship. I'll get back to you on that one, King. Oh, this is this has been a really good race. Uh, thank you. Thank you, King, and I thank you, Chris, for helping us tell the story of one of the better Indianapolis 500s in modern history. And I thank you to everybody who is out here listening, whether you're listening live like our friends Jason and Cameron and Rezzy, who, again, it's still super fucking early in the morning in Indonesia. And you all are, have been through it here. And I thank you so much to everybody who's listening. As we're wrapping things up again, motorsport101.com, youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. We are on Twitter at underscore Motors. We are on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. If you wish to follow us personally, you can at Harrison101HD. That's for Dre, who will be back from vacation soon, we think. Um, myself, RJ O'Connell, Ryan Eric King, that's with two Ks, uh, and Chris DeHarde, that's C D E H A R D E. And one more thing, if you may. So uh, Saturday night in Anderson, Indiana, they have the Little 500, and uh, no surprises there. The greatest USAC driver currently running, in my opinion, Cody Swanson won. I believe it's his third Little 500 win in a row, and in my opinion, he should be the next driver that USAC pushes to get into an Indy Lights car for the Freedom 100. Um, Cody, awesome job. He was, I think, second at the um, 
Hoosier 100, and he would have won the Carbonite Classic had his engine not overheated uh, late in the race. Uh, RJ, I think we're ready to wrap this thing up. Absolutely, and that's a good point. I'd love to see Cody attempt the Freedom 100 at some point. You're very much right. So we got our personal handles, and of course, if you wish to back us financially with your hard-earned money, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101, where again, for $5 a month, you can listen to every show early. For $10 a month, you can get into our supporter section and listen to every show even earlier as it's being recorded. And of course... um, we will, of course, have later on this week or earlier on this week, depending on how we release these episodes. We'll talk about all the other things that happened over the greatest weekend in motor racing. We'll reflect on the life of Nikki Lauda. We'll reflect on a Monaco Grand Prix and everything else that happened in the world of motorsport. So for Andre Harrison, for Ryan Eric King and Christopher Hardy, I'm RJ O'Connell saying so long and thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Later, y'all. Bye. See you.